All right. So it's about two minutes after the hour. So I'm only going to take one minute here, which is to say, first of all, I'm very excited for today's talk. Um, so this talk is part of our DEI lecture series, but I've been waiting for it all year. So I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, second is at the end of the talk, we're going to have uh, just a special announcement. So for those of you that are fellows here at Maryland or faculty here, you can just stay on even at the end of the talk. Um, I would really appreciate that. Um, so without further ado, I'm actually going to turn it over first to Gura Netzer. So Dr. Netzer, as most of you probably know, is a professor of medicine here at Maryland and uh, part of pulmonary and critical care and the vice president of patient experience. And he asked to introduce one of his mentees. So I will turn it over to him. Great. So I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Galaciados. Uh, so he is a 2010 graduate of the University of Maryland School of Medicine, an achievement made even more impressive by surviving his sub-internship in our MICU. Uh, he is currently assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care at Johns Hopkins University and director of their tobacco treatment clinic. Uh, Dr. Galeazzo's, uh, after his, uh, his graduation from Maryland, uh, did his residency at Johns Hopkins Bayview, followed by a fellowship in uh, critical care, National Institutes of Health, and in pulmonary critical care at Johns Hopkins uh, University. He has a master's in health sciences uh, from Duke University, as well as a master's in uh, tobacco treatment from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, his research seeks to better understand and create uh, tactics to improve population health and address uh, historical healthcare disparities uh, in communities, particularly by working with uh, faith-based organizations, uh, as well as other work that he's done in uh, critical care, uh, and also in pulmonary. Uh, he has an impressive publication dossier as assistant professor uh, with 65 publications at last count. Uh, he has continuously pushed our understanding of pulmonary and critical care well beyond hospital walls uh, with his work in community engagement. He is one of the co-founders and the co-director of Medicine for the Greater Good and also is co-chair for Johns Hopkins Health Equity Steering Committee. Uh, he has published widely also in the uh, non-peer-reviewed literature in terms of op-eds in Baltimore Sun and Newsweek, uh, and has a massive mentorship dossier, including pre- and post-doctoral mentees. Uh, his honors include a Distinguished uh, uh, Teaching Award from Johns Hopkins, uh, as well as being a two-time awardee of a Healthcare Hero Award uh, from Baltimore's Daily Record. Uh, it would be hard to call even more uh, from the massive amounts and leave him enough time to talk, uh, so it's with great pleasure that we welcome you back, Panagas, uh, to the University of Maryland. Hi, um, it, it's a it's a true honor. And uh, uh, that sub internship I have to share. So I uh, I chose to do internal medicine like May of third year. Then like you know so when I tried to sign up for sub internships, they were all taken other than the MICU. And everyone was like, you're oh you're gonna have such a miserable time. I was fortunate enough to have Dr. Netzer. And uh, ended up falling in love with it. I mean, I declared I wanted to do palm critical care, honestly, at that moment more than anything. And um, Dr. Netzer emailed me the letter he wrote for my residency application, which is framed and in my office. So uh, I thank you, good sir. Um, you know, I'm just paying it back as well as you did for me. So thank you for that. That everything comes full circle. I love it. Um, with that setup, though, that's why I got excited when Andy was like, hey, can you come and give some, like, this talk when other talks are around us? I'm hoping Andy would keep inviting me back to have these conversations of health disparities. Because one of the things I think becomes very evident, especially in our medical ICUs, and that's how we're going to end this. So I'm giving you a little bit of insight into the beginning and how we'll close it, is what role we as critical care doctors can do, right? And I see this because 
oftentimes the conversations about the non-biological factors that you know impact our patients' health outcomes more than anything else. I'm talking about things like housing to transportation, et cetera, right? We know, you know, how much accountability we have over that. And do we even have any accountability as critical care doctors? And I'm going to try to make and give you guys the argument that we do. And a lot of it is because we probably have the best insight into these uh, disparities resulting in life and death matter, uh, moments. And those kind of narratives, I promise you, really are more fuel to the fire to uh, do the best that we can to end them. And one of the conversations we're going to do today is this one. I got excited to give this lecture because it draws a little bit from my experience with sepsis. Um, but I think it's going to still follow the same kind of uh, understanding of its pathogenesis. So excited to give this lecture. Hopefully, you guys will sit back and learn, but also realize that, yeah, as critical care doctors, if this is the only conclusion you draw away from this, I'm excited. Yes, as critical care doctors, we are accountable to help patients overcome the health disparities that exist. So I have no disclosures uh, to, offer, to give at this moment. Uh, so our three objectives, to understand the notion of identifying health disparities, to review the biological basis of coagulopathies, and to review the current trends in VTE in critically ill patients. Now, the first objective that I put here, it's actually important because whenever I've, I, I used to just give, I gave talks about health disparities, and then I began to kind of take a back seat a little bit into kind of diving into it, just diving right in. And a lot of it actually came from my own wife, who's a physiatrist, who was just like, I don't think people really know what disparities is, right? Meaning we use the term, we think we know what it means, what does it really mean? And it made me realize, like, let me take a step back and actually discuss this. Because in order to identify a disparity, like, you have to know what you mean by calling that. So let me, let me give you guys an example right here, right? If I told you more women, more females suffer pregnancy-related complications than men, you would probably say, well, yes. Or more men have more prostate cancers than women. I'm not going to get anyone fighting this. You're like, yeah, there's you know, XX versus XY, there's, there's genetic reasons for this. One group has a prostate, the other one doesn't, right? Those are differences. If I say, hey, the older population, 70 and older, have more oncological complications, more cancer prevalence and incidence than, you know, zero to five-year-olds, you would look at that age, age as a difference. That's a difference. That's not a disparity. Don't try to level that off. If I told you there's more malaria cases in Northern Africa than there is here in Baltimore, yeah, I think what I'm alluding to is there are differences many times throughout the conversation of medicine. Those are differences. We, we accept them. We don't view them wrong for a variety of reasons, either biological or geographical. We accept them. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because when we see different rates, if we want to call it a disparity, you've got to go further than that. You can't just call it a disparity because it happens to be against certain ethnicities or against certain races or against ages. You have to really dissect what that term means. Otherwise, what you're finding in your trends are just differences at that moment. So differences, when they occur, are though, so taking differences and making it into disparity means that those differences are occurring in groups, one being privileged and one being marginalized. And this is the most important point. Well, they're all important. And the societies have to view it as such right? We have to view it as that's unjust. That can't be. That difference that exists between these two groups, one privileged and one marginalized, that shouldn't be, right? We have to do something about that. So a health disparity is a subjectivity there, right? If you find different rates, 
to really translate it into an act and have the conversation of disparity, you have to recognize there's going to be a subjectivity there. I always make the case, you know, we used to see these health disparity slides of, you know, three people, different heights, standing next to a fence trying to watch a baseball game. And people are like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a disparity. And then we, you know, that's equity and this is, you know, an equitable action. And I'm like, well, the biggest thing, though, is do we view it as such, right? Fences are created at a certain height, right? I don't think it's unjust that someone can't see. So what I'm alluding to from that conversation is we as a society have to deem it as unjust. Once we put that viewpoint on, then more conversations can happen of what that actually means. So what we say it's unjust, it means it's avoidable, it's unjust, and it's unfair. That's a disparity. So when we see different rates happening, we have to have that conversation, right? Is it unjust and unfair? Yes. And is it avoidable? If it's not, then we really got to discuss, you know, what we mean here in order to kind of counter that off, in order to level that off. Why I'm saying this is one, especially if people do their research uh, in, in, in picking up differences, if you want to call it a disparity, you have to dissect back to see where, where that is occurring that could be avoidable and how do you level that off. So it does get comp complicated because it takes a lot more sociological thinking in regards to what, what resulted in this, what created this. So evidence is, so in regards to how to identify a disparity, then this is the harder part. Right, so often evidence is drawn from studies that compare measures of disparities before and after, adjusting for a risk factor. So a true health disparity is found by saying, I think it's caused by this. Let me do a trial and a control for it, and we'll see what happens. That is how you will identify health disparity. Everything prior to that is more hypothesis generating and theory generating. To really say this is a disparity, you have to do usually what's requested as a before and after trial. Now, the concerns with this, though, is you know, changes that could be seen could also be due to confounding or selection bias or even information bias. And information bias is any system, uh, systematic difference from the truth that arises in the collection, the recall, and the reporting of the handling of the information that's being studied. So this begins to lend the conversation that this is hard, right? Even I, when I do my research, I really bite my tongue by calling it a disparity. I call it differences, and then in my discussion section, I explore what I think this could be. One of the earliest um, conversations around differences, for instance, uh, in sepsis, sorry for drawing from that, even though this is a VTE lecture, um, came out of the group back in 2003 that published their study in regards to, uh, this was Dr. Martin's group, that discussed the epidemiological differences of sepsis. And he made a good point, or the group made a good point to say these are differences. They don't know if they're actual disparities, even though we're seeing different rates between races and ethnicities. And I applaud that, that moment. It was 2003, a little bit ahead of its time and when disparities really became more of a conversation piece for the rest of the global world in regards to public health and medicine. So identifying a disparity clearly, as I'm laying out, it's hard. It is hard to do. So most of us, what we do in our job is, you know, when we study this, we really are looking for theoretical reasons why we think this could be occurring. And so disparity you know, leaving a little bit more away from the statistics, let's dive into more of the subjectivity here that's important. Disparities measure, uh, disparity measures should reflect judgments about what constitutes an unfair and inequitable difference in the outcome. A judgment that we believe identifies things that are avoidable, resulting in marginalized groups having worse outcomes. Again, I'm laying this out to build the conversation of why it's important when we do health disparities research, 
What are we trying to say? What is coming about that we think is unjust, avoidable, and actionable to change that? Now, when I see this out loud, again, as critical care doctors, you're like, well, you're, you're not convincing me at all that we even have a, a, any skin in the game here. Like, I, I get that, right? When I begin to have these conversations, clearly it unearths a, a diverse conversation of biological and non-biological factors, healthcare-oriented and non-healthcare-oriented. This becomes complex. I get that. Why do I, why do I see that? It's because it becomes so complicated that even the Institute of Medicine opts to shy away from everything around healthcare disparities that doesn't have to include the healthcare system. So a careful reading of these definitions, of the definition by the Institute of Medicine, um, recognizes that in defining disparities, the aforementioned uh, definition avoids detailing a causal model for how they arise. Because for the most part, they don't arise within a healthcare system. We'll discuss that a little bit in a little, in a little bit. There are objections to this, of course. Many of us, uh, you know, want some level of accountability, but recognizing that we won't really have a lot of say of how to be accountable for that. So the objections are, are correct, and I think right in their own right. However, this definition, these definitions by the Institute of Medicine does allow for more practical and scientific reasons as to why this is favorable. Specifically, it forces us to consider what sources of difference might be considered fair or allowable, and to remove these from the analyses in an effort to focus on healthcare services, right? Meaning we will run our statistics and we'll control for race, for socioeconomic status, from the community and so forth. We do this again to, it, it, it does provide a little bit more simplicity when we evaluate just the healthcare services. Let me give you guys an example that came up, right? This was one of the most widely cited studies during the COVID-19 pandemic from a healthcare disparity standpoint. And I say disparity. But Haywood's group, you know, I, I think oftentimes this study gets misunderstood when the conclusions they were trying to draw, even though the conclusions were right there, even in the abstract, right? What Haywood was trying to imply, and it, not imply, trying to conclude was, yes, a disproportionate amount of people were diagnosed with COVID that resulted in healthcare utilization. That was the conclusion. But in the outcomes, black race was not associated with higher in-hospital mortality than white race after adjustments for differences in sociodemographics and clinical characteristics on admission. This is important because a lot of critical care trials look like this, right? We see a disproportionate amount of people coming in, but when we control for these sociodemographic factors, both individual and contextual levels, everyone gets the same outcome. And this goes back to this definition, right? They recognize that and they want to, you know, encourage not uh, the causal reasons why more Black African American patients were diagnosed and came into the hospital, but they want to focus on, as a healthcare system, how are we doing? Is everyone having an equal outcome despite the disadvantages they have showing up in our hospitals? So when we go back to this, right, and how to identify disparities, it is hard. I get that. And for many of us, we are going to conclude from just looking at this from a healthcare service. So my, my closing thoughts um, on this, right, disparities may be difficult to prove. I want to make that clear. Whenever I get really well-intended mentees at the spectrum of their career, you know, where they're at, they're like, I want, I want to tackle disparities. And I make it clear. I'm like, it's going to be hard. First, let's see if there's differences. And then we have to scale back, right? Statistically, I can't prove that something's unjust unfair and proving that it's going to take time if we want to do it from a social standpoint. Within the healthcare services, 
that might be a little bit easier to do and improve those methods um, within our own resources. I get that. But we need to be conscious of how we throw this term around because oftentimes it's not what we think it means. And realizing this, I'm hoping even you guys begin to use your language more appropriately, like you're picking up differences. If these are true disparities, well, let's evaluate that. And by having that kind of lens and perspective, what I'm hoping is it begins to make you feel like you want to have some skin in the game, right? So taking it back to the original objective of all of this. So what one, uh, what one should aim for, for is establishing a position to identify factors, amenable to an intervention, and defining the purpose of the intervention within the frame of the social contract between the patient and health system. This, you know, that's what we ultimately want to achieve with healthcare disparity research. Now, when Andy asked me to give you guys this lecture about healthcare disparities around venous thromboembolisms, there's a variety of places I could have tackled, right? I was only, I was told I was given 60 minutes, well, not even 60 minutes, I was told I was given, you know, let's say 30 to 40 minutes to give this talk with plenty of time for Q&A. So talking about this, when we want to talk about critical care disparities, there's obviously a variety of places we could do this, not disparities, I'm sorry, differences, critical care differences, and then we're going to discuss if these are true disparities, right? So clinical care to outcomes is probably what we most want to know. And, and I say this because I'm setting myself up to say I'm going to tackle it differently. I'm going to actually tackle it from the incident of venous thromboembolisms, right, to try to gauge insight into what could potentially be causing this. We're all critical care doctors. I promise you the evidence does support that we do well when you control for race and socioeconomic status. Patients get great outcomes in regards to their venous thromboembolism management, whether it's PE or DBTs. That's not, you know, that's great. I want to discuss why that occurred to begin with. Why is there going to be a disproportionate amount of patients experiencing this by social standards than others, right? Because then we can begin to discuss, are they marginalized versus more affluent? And then we can begin the conversations of what can even an ICU doctor, as I'm quoting Dr. Netzer from July 2010 now, what can a simple country critical care lung doctor do? I feel like you always introduce yourself in that fashion. So we're going to go to here. We're going to really emphasize the presentation. We're going to discuss who's getting more VTEs. We're going to discuss the prevalence of all of this and try to come up with some theory of why this is occurring. And then, I already told you, the clinical care outcomes, the data to date, who support for doing all that. I'm not winning anyone over here with this argument. I think we recognize that hospitalized patients versus patients out in the community get more venous thromboembolisms. Again, a difference that no one would tell me it is a disparity, right? We have a biological understanding of why this occurs. We don't think it's unfair. We don't think it's unjust. It's part of the biological process of a variety of diseases and ways patients are managed. We get this. So there, this isn't a disparity. This is a, an, an acceptance and one that we can't modify other than saying, don't let patients get sick, which you know, to date, I don't think we figured out how to do that. Now let's go here to some extent, right? Because you'll see how I'm gonna try to tie this all in, right? So we'll dive a little bit deeper into what causes and what doesn't cause clots, what promotes them and what is a kind of a, a force against them. So looking at this, you know, from the vessel wall standpoint, there's thrombogenic parts and there's anti-thrombogenic parts, right, that are part of the conversation. One of the things I'm going to focus on in the next two slides is really at the basis of the endothelium, right? Dysfunction there helps um, promote the ability for a clot to happen, depending on who's driving it. In regards to circulating... Elements of, again, there's some that are uh, pro-thrombogenic and others that are anti-thrombogenic, right? From platelets to your 
fibrinogen to your prothrombins and antithrombogenics as well to your protein fleas. Right? For many of you, if you're recalling, you know, the coagulation cascades from medical school, I applaud you. I still have not committed it to memory, though in time for boards, I think I've been gotten again. But this is the slide I was alluding to, where the endothelium, to some extent, always plays a role in creating a clot. Why in bringing up endothelium and the potential dysfunction is a discussive pathogenesis layer. So bookmark me mentioning endothelium several times now to discuss it later. So you can get clots in a variety of ways, right? Your cardiologists and their atherosclerotic uh, thrombogenic events from more of our mixed with status and creation of clots here to oncological reasons as well as, um, you know, some rheumatological uh, uh, conditions such as antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And MV here stands for microvessels TF as your tissue factor um, that we were highlighting earlier. So there's a variety of ways patients can get clots, right? But one of the things that kind of unifies it to some extent is that endothelial dysfunction. Now, let's dive into some data, right? And knowing that Dr. Netzer said, I'm going to try to do my best to represent data. So this is one of the earliest studies that explored differences in populations and their ability to form venous thromboembolisms. Why I bring up this study, what's fascinating is if you explore the data around, you know, differences in VTEs, the study still gets cited. It's 2022, and this is the one that keeps getting cited as tell you, more uh, men than women get VTEs. And I'm like, oh, all right. All right, Dr. Silverstein, what are you up to? And then I realized the study comes from 1998. So nonetheless, the study, actually, the reason why I think it gets so well uh, highlighted over and over again is because of some, because it is staying true. Like, this really hasn't changed that much. Maybe we can make the argument that how we diagnose it has changed, and maybe we're, we can be more precise. That's fair. But to, some, but to a large extent, men and women still have these differences. So, Early in the course, right, younger, so teenagers, 20s, 30s, more females than males have uh, clotting. And then later on, it, males kind of uh, take over. And this, you know, still holds true of almost 20 years later. Now, this study explored patients of between 1966 and 1990, so a 25-year period exploring these outcomes between genders. Now, Let's dive into, let's move away from gender and, and dive into more of a social feature, which is race. And this is the part that I'm going to take, we'll take our time to kind of have on this conversation, because when I look here, going back to gender, I don't know what to make of it. You know, the, the early onset is, you know, women during childbearing ages that we know can be more pro-clotting. So you know, from that standpoint, no one's going to look at that difference and make an argument for potentially some unjust things. Um, to, to call it a disparity. And then later on, more men uh, than women having it probably has a lot more to do with other factors as well that we can discuss later, one that can potentially tie into the race conversation. But now, let's dive into it. So this is one of the biggest studies that um, came out in regards to exploring racial differences and the study setting specifically was seven centers within a CDC thrombosis and hemostasis centers research and prevention network. Love it. As physician scientists, we love having as many letters to these names as possible. And these centers bring to downtown um, uh, in the North Carolina area. 
So with um, the reason why they wanted to bring them in, though, is they felt they had a substantial number of, of Black African-American patients with venous thromboembolisms. Patients and their families attending one of the seven centers could consent to be part of these trials and then allowing us with that consent to kind of explore certain factors. And what I applaud Height and, and the group with this study is that they really explored things from the, the genetic standpoint and, and much more. So we'll go over that. So from a genetic defect, and the factors that I'm identifying for the most part are all going to be statistically significant. Ross, I'll make a mention that they aren't. So more genetic differences were found in white patients, right? Factor five, leading and prothrombin. No differences in the rest of the genetic factors, right? And those genetic differences were found in more white patients than their black African-American counterparts. Let's go to the next slide. Sorry for saying that. I'm the one, obviously, that's moving the slides along. Now, potential causes, right? So look at these potential causes, right? These are all transient causes, right? Post-surgery, trauma, oral contraception, infections, right? These are transient causes, like, and not just transient, but these are identifiable causes, right? We know we can, you know, we don't have to put too much intellectual thought to identify what could be contributing to this. But when you look at the numbers, these transient causes with a primary obvious source are all leaning on the category of whites having it more prevalent than black, uh, their black counterpart patients. All right, let's look at this slide. Now this is where we're gonna spend a little bit of time having a conversation um, in a few more slides later on down the road, but this needs to be dissected, needs, needs to be emphasized. So sickle cell, more black patients than their white counterparts. HIV, more black patients than their white counterparts. Now look at these other non-communicable diseases. Hypertension, higher in the black African-American population than the white population. Diabetes, same thing here, higher in the black African-American populations than in their white counterparts. Renal disease and those needing hemodialysis. These diseases aren't transient. You know, you can make the argument that you can manage them well here and there. They're not transient, right? These, for the most part, are permanent. The other part here is hypertension, diabetes specifically, and to some extent, renal disease will, will go in, you know, we can emphasize that for our nephrology colleagues. But hypertension, diabetes have a massive endothelial dysfunction to them. So we'll just another bookmark placement here. But these are chronic comorbidities found more in black African-American patients than their white counterparts. Now, bringing all this up, what the authors ended up concluding that I think, again, you know, powerful conclusions here, other than the genetic predispositions, which weren't that prevalent overall, compared to white patients, black patients had higher rates of idiopathic VTD. That's key to bring up here. The white counterparts, as we mentioned in this slide here, I could identify why they had it. That's right after surgery. Or it's, yeah, they had a trauma incident. They're taking the medication that's more prothrombotic. They had an infection. The white patients had identifiable causes. Black patients had higher incidences of idiopathic VTE. And also, I didn't show, show this in the slide, but higher rates of pulmonary embolism in black patients. White patients, this is what I was mentioning earlier, those identifiable causes, those were transient, right? Those were ones that we could say, aha, that's why it was caused. We'll start you on this many months of a blood thinner, and you should be okay after that. White patients also had higher rates of genetic predispositions for VTE and have higher rates of transient causes, right? So we already emphasized that. Black patients had higher rates of idiopathic. Now, what about mortality? Well, black patients have, have 
higher rate of mortality for VTE. Going back to that conversation with Institute of Medicine, where we discussed, but in hospital, right, when we control things, you know, statistically with race and, and socioeconomic status, what happens then? Mortality for VTE by races, in hospital calls, uh, case fatality was similar between the racial groups when you controlled for them in your analyses, right? So with in hospital case uh, mortality, as I was mentioning earlier, we do well, we do great. It's more of what caused these to begin with that we, you know, a healthcare system doesn't, doesn't have that accountability at this moment to feel like it knows what to do prior to that of why they were happening at higher rates. So the disparity isn't happening within the hospital. We can level that off. The disparity seems to be occurring if we're going to call it that, and we should, right? If, if white patients have higher, uh, higher, rate, uh, higher risk factors from genetic predisposition and transient causes of, and, and identifiable causes of VTEs, how come black African-American patients are having higher rates of idiopathic ones? And, you know, looking at it overall, higher rates of death because they're disproportionately having them at higher rates. Now, the authors do make a case, could there potentially be some genetic predisposition that we just haven't found? Fine, we'll throw that out there as a hypothesis, but I'm imagining there's other more modifiable reasons that we can explore later on as we kind of think of some hypotheses to bring up. Now, so Folsom groups here, they measured uh, the venous thromboembolism risk factors in black and white participants that took part in the atherosclerosis risk in community study between 1987 and 1989. And then they followed them perspectively. You're like, whoa, not the 80s. Well, yeah, but they followed them perspectively through 2015, right? And decades of, in, of insight taking in from these patients. And they followed them specifically for VTE incidents. And what the results showed was that over 22 years, they identified 332 venous thromboembolisms in black patients and 578 in white patients, yielding a 65% higher crude incidence rate per 1,000 person years in Blacks. So over these decades, the Black African-American patients had a higher incidence of VTEs compared to their white counterparts. The age and sex, uh, the age and sex adjusted hazard ratio of VTE for Black patients compared with whites was almost doubled, 2.04, um, after follow-up of more than 10 years. Now, to some extent, those, um, when you control for other factors, it, it did drop a little bit, but it's still relatively high. Now, what the authors concluded was the higher incidence rate of VTEs in blacks and whites was mostly explained by blacks having higher frequencies of venous thromboembolism risk factors. What risk factors specifically were they, these authors indicating? This. They were indicating that they had a lot more endothelial dysfunction risk factors, right? And so what does that mean? Which ones particularly? Well, the ones that hopefully come to mind usually for the, the majority of Americans is your diabetes, your hypertension, right? These two factors here at their bases do come up with a lot of endothelial dysfunction that occur in patients that will result uh, potentially setting them up for those idiopathic venous thromboembolisms. Now, you know, there's multiple studies that indicate this, right? These pro-inflammatory markers that result in endothelial dysfunction happening at a, you know, subclinical level, I'm calling it that, and I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but, you know, these pro-inflammatory markers get a lot of our attention when they're really high because what we're thinking is, you know, these are leading to certain, you know, syndromes and phenotypes like your 
like sepsis and acute respiratory distress syndrome. But a lot of these markers are happening at a more subclinical level or happening at a level that isn't as, um, as uh, high as you would find in those critically, uh, critical care-related um, pathologies. But hypertension and diabetes, especially over decades, does raise these levels at a, uh, higher levels than their counterparts who don't have those same conditions and are matched by age. Hypertension and diabetes still continue to be highly prevalent in the Black African American communities, higher than any other rates than, um, uh, of non-communicable diseases. Why I bring this up is because a lot of the risk factors that result in these begin to be present in patients at early ages. So access to food, right? And when I say this, I mean processed food versus non-processed. Access to tobacco, higher prevalence is in lower socioeconomic status communities. That will drive diabetes and hypertension, not so much as causation, but definitely as an influence. And other factors as well that get really explored um, thoroughly by other sociological measures that when you get introduced to these risk factors, you end up developing these non-communicable diseases over time. And having these two diseases here, not only are risk factors, seems like for venous thromboembolisms, but many of us know these are risk factors as well for worse COVID-19, right? Severe COVID-19. You've heard those reports over and over again, hypertension, diabetes being associated with higher rates of severe COVID-19. But these risk factors are also found in other pathologies that are at higher rates in the critical care arena, such as sepsis and acute respiratory distress syndrome. So those have a lot to do at the basis of endothelial dysfunction. And those diseases tend to cluster a lot more in disadvantaged populations. Now, identify them by race, because that's where the majority of studies happen in America. And we oftentimes use race as a surrogate to kind of help us better explain other complicated social factors. But I think that's a bit of a cop-out, and we need to do better. We need to do more. So for the time being, with this critical care disparity lecture, I am going to emphasize race, where I'm hoping another decade or so, or in the, in the near future, we get more insight into more granular factors that could better explain this, especially at the contextual level, fact, uh, level, right? Neighborhood compositions and how those contribute to things like venous thromboembolisms, but more to come. But again, why I wanted to have this lecture and thinking of the perspective of where to come from, right? I wanted to start here. I wanted to really discuss this, and this is where I'll finish off, you know, trying to leave plenty of time for Q&A, because this is the part that often when I give these lectures to critical care arenas, talking about disparities, it's hard for me to emphasize disparities within the healthcare system, right? Because so many studies discuss a disproportionate amount might come in, but when you control, you know, the, you know, the disproportionate factor, right? When you control by race or controlled by ethnicity or controlled potential for socioeconomic status depending on the disease, it levels off. Everyone has the same outcomes, right? Sometimes, you know, depending on the hospital, that could be a very different reason. For, um, and for instance, in myocardial infarctions, hospitals that don't have great teams that deal well with MIs have poor outcomes. So there's hospital-level factors as well that I'm not bringing up here, and that uh, complicates the conversation a little bit, but it's an enjoyable one if you guys want to have it. What I'm trying to get at here is having us recognize, you know, we see this in our own ICUs. We see the patients that are being most impacted by critical care diseases. And oftentimes what we're not allowed to do is have the conversation of why. You know, think of almost any other um, profession, right? 
they do get to explore to some extent that novelty of why. And I call that a novelty because in the ICU world, I get the high pace that we have in trying to understand a lot of the complexity of the disease we see, but what we end up doing is managing the patients in real time and making sure they survive. I get that. And that's fantastic that we do that. In addition to that, we should be asking ourselves why. Why are we seeing more A, B, and C patients coming in by race, by socioeconomic status, by ethnicity? We were asking that with COVID. We did a really good job of asking that. And I applaud us for having that attention in that moment of time. But, you know, when that was occurring in that moment in time, many of us, myself included, were biting our tongue and saying, I don't think it's going to be enough to truly become a movement, really become a point of emphasis. Because the factors that contributed to those disproportionate rates of severe COVID, we tried to offset them as much as we could. More information, more town halls there, more face masks, more vaccine equity. Great. Could you imagine if we put that kind of attention to all the disproportionate things happening in critical care, such as venous thromboembolisms? So much would change. So why am I saying all this to you guys about the incidence and prevalence? Things that are occurring outside of our ICU. I get that. Things that are occurring in an arena where we don't have that much say, right? We've never really felt we needed to be there. Now, this is the part I'm going to pivot to. To really hope to get you guys realizing or motivated to want to tackle healthcare disparities, even though a lot of what you see doesn't happen necessarily in the ICU with regards to the outcomes, meaning the pathogenesis could be something of a key arena for us to be more involved in. Uh, so as a physician, I sit in many, uh, many meetings at Hopkins and uh, national institutions, and, you know, the people that show up to discuss the things that are occurring that create the uh, diseases before they enter the hospital aren't us. They're not ICU doctors. And that breaks my heart because we have some of the best insight into understanding when these disparities become life-threatening. And we have those narratives and stories to share. And so that, from my standpoint, is one of the reasons we need to be having these conversations. We see the worst. We see those venous thromboembolisms result in ICU admissions, result in ICU deaths. And just what I'm alluding to is the disparity that we're seeing isn't so much happening in the arena of the healthcare system. It's happening prior to that because of the disproportionate amount of patients coming in. So it's like Haywood identified with disproportionate amount of minority races coming into the hospital with severe COVID-19. In-hospital mortality was the same across all race, racial groups when you control them in your statistical analysis. So the real conversation about disparity isn't in the hospital healthcare setting. It's prior to that. The same thing here would be in the thromboembolisms. So to really identify this as, you know, as a disparity, you know, and this is where we'll finish off. These are the questions you guys have to ask. And this is why I started the lecture the way I did. We need to be cautious when we use the word disparity, right? Because if we use it too much, then we just become numb to it. And we don't know what to do with it, right? We find a lot of differences. To call it a disparity, you have to supplement it with, is this unfair? Is this unjust? And was this avoidable? If you can fulfill these three, then great. And you have identified that. And then we should explore how to overcome it. And why I'm asking you guys to take these intellectual, you know, um, intellectual processes is because we really do, as ICU doctors, hold a lens that no other profession does, right? We see this happening in our patients in real time, taper lives. No other profession can really say that, 
seeing it firsthand. We saw that with COVID. We'll see that with venous thromboembolism. We see this with other diseases. We see this. And that voice, you know, when the patient passes away, we become their voice. We should become their voice. And what I'm asking, you know, having this conversation today is the beginning to have us enter the arena and make people understand that the ICU, the intensive care unit, really can be the North Star to seeing if you're doing good to level off these issues before they even step foot into the hospital. If you really want to see disparities coming away, look at the ICUs first. Right now, we're exploring those, that kind of theme in our pediatric ICU at Hopkins with regards to ICU utilization. So we see the same things happening there. When you level off by race, everyone has the same outcomes. However, why certain communities throughout the city of Baltimore have more ICU utilization than others, we need to address that. I know a hospital may not feel accountable. I get that. Doesn't necessarily, it shouldn't mean, though, that we shouldn't be there for those conversations. Even if we can't help with the access to care, we can at least advocate for their care. So to so you all, you know, when I got asked to be here and have this conversation, I, I, I know I went with a very specific lens of the disease spectrum where many of you feel like, all right, that's that all happening outside of my ICU. I get that. However, at the same time, I really encourage you all, you know, one, to understand why the disparity potential may be happening, and then really exploring how to fix this. One of my favorite um, conversations about the ICU um, that, that I always reflect on, and I say this because I still to date have no idea which specific mentor or role model said this out loud, but he challenged, you know, when I was sitting one round, he really challenged that the ICU really we should explore of how to prevent critical care from happening, right? Critical care diseases. We really should be at the forefront of having those conversations. And to me, this is how we do it. We identify true disparities because we think these are avoidable and we're part of the conversations of how to prevent them and treat them. And hospitals really should use the ICU to see if we're making a dent in those disparities. So with that said, I'll stop here and leave hopefully 10 minutes for Q&A. Anagus, thank you so much for sharing this talk with us. Um, I have sort of a, a related question, but not directly related to this issue, which is that you do a lot of community involvement. Um, and, and so tell me a little bit about how you got involved in the community and, and community outreach as a way to, as a physician, sort of maybe be part of the discussions about some of these issues or to help tackle some of these issues, not necessarily wearing your doctor's hat, but wearing it in like a community context. Yeah, no, and thank you, Andy. And like, honestly, that, that part, you know, I, I have to admit, it's a very non-traditional path and it wasn't my intention. Like, you know, when I, um, you know, I, I always, uh, so Dr. Susan Wolfsall lives near me and I run into her and I always feel like my first reflex is to apologize for not going to Maryland for residency. But there was a reason why I chose Bayview because that, that was the hospital that was part of my community. Actually, it was a hospital that told my mom to not, you know, my mom was pregnant with me. She didn't speak English. She showed up there and it was known as, I think, City Hospital then, or Francis Scott Keating. They told her to leave. Andy, you're asking this question because I have to answer it with a personal narrative. Like, being a resident there, I saw my colleagues know the science of medicine well. They knew their patients well. They didn't know the community. And they'd make these suggestions to the patients about access to health-like things out in the community. I'm like, you don't know what your suggestion like. Like, you had this incomplete picture. And for me, community engagement then really became a way to actually train physicians with that sophisticated science of how to do it appropriately and well at a grassroots movement, how to create homophily there, how to create a sense of trust, disseminated messaging, 
that really impacts the levels of transitivity and so forth, right? I wanted people to have that insight because I thought that's the complete picture of medicine. Know the science, know the patient, and know the community, right? Only then can you really speak to how to do this well, right? Because in the hospital, why we get certain patients from certain communities more into the hospital than others clearly warrants conversations. Like, obviously, the, that contextual level relationship with the community is having some level of impact. So I say all this because I think I, I put more of a doctor hat, right? If I really want to treat a patient, I got to be bedside by the patient. If I want to help a community, I got to be bedside by the community, right? So it came from a personal narrative. It gained traction by, I realized there's merit in it, right? And, you know, the, the pandemic thing really put a massive spotlight in it, Andy. From my standpoint, I mean, I, I tell this to everyone, like we, we have the science and the pandemic, right? We know that. We know these masks work to not catch it. So does physical distancing, so do the vaccines. But there's reasons why the communities don't take the science on. And the last process, Andy, you know, community, you know, I think we really need to put a really appropriate spotlight on ourselves about what we practice in medicine, right? Science is a string of objective facts that really has no cultural identity, right? Whether you define yourself as Greek Orthodox or Jewish Orthodox, it's not like you're sitting there citing the New England Journal of Medicine to kind of emphasize your culture, right? Science is a string of objective facts that has no place in a culture. Why I bring that up is because if we want people to understand what we do and how we can benefit their lives, we can only do that if we go out there and do and say just that, right? And how have them culturally translated for us into meaning for them. People don't want to learn you know, this four-minute lecture. They want to know how this can improve their lives as part of their identity. And you can only really establish that if you do community engagement. So that's what I, I, I discuss and treat and do. And Early on in my career, I did it more naively because I was like, oh, this, I felt like it was the right thing to do. A decade later, you know, I, I try to put a lot of science behind it so people can understand and try to convince a healthcare system to do it more appropriately. The pandemic really was a silver lining to emphasize that. And I'm doing my best to make sure that it's just not a moment in time, but a true movement. And with that said, Andy, I'll finish here. Sorry, I keep saying that. Us, us ICU doctors have by far, in my opinion, I know it's biased, the most important role to have in health disparities. Right? Because, like I said, we see the life and death outcomes of that. we got to take that conversation back to the table. Even if it's not statistics and data, personal narratives move people, I promise you. And therefore, if we see the disparities leveling off in the ICU, it'll level off everywhere else right? in this some fashion. But we have such an important role. So, yeah, you may not be able to overcome those disparities in the ICU. I get that. But we shouldn't leave our responsibility there. We have a responsibility to patients to make sure these never again happen. That's, that's why I'm here. That's why I want to get us involved as much as we can. We have the best lens with healthcare disparities, I promise you.